The following audio is from Jacob's Well Church. For more information about Jacob's Well Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. like that. It's good. Hey, while people are returning, uh, just a few more things I want to point out. Uh, number one, you saw out here there's a lost and found uh, station. And uh, normally that's underneath the TV in the atrium in that black shelf if you find something or if you lose something. Uh, but it, those will be out there through next Sunday. If you don't pick it up by next Sunday, it will be donated to Goodwill uh, or the Jacob's Well staff. And so please pick those up. Also, we do need your help after the second service or after the service with stacking chairs uh, in groups of six. And if you would make sure that the chairs are facing the windows, that way kids can't climb on them during Awana. And uh, also, we're going to be doing some Christmas skits this year. Uh, if you're interested in doing some drama and learning, or if you're experienced, uh, check, the card on, check the connection card, put that in the offering basket, and we'll get you more information on that as well. Um, but if you would, please open up to Romans chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, there should be a Bible in the pew in front of you, uh, or seat. Are these considered pews? Are these pews? Sure. Um, in the chair in front of you or around you, there should be a Bible. Uh, if you don't own a Bible, that is for you to keep as a gift from Jacob's well. well we're going to read Romans 3, verses 1 through 18. It's page 940 on that red Bible and page 1222 in the children's Bible. Let's pray. Lord, we come to your heart with foggy minds and foggy hearts. Lord, we are distracted by our own agendas about our busyness. We're distracted by our sin, Lord. Um, Lord, we come to the, your word being finite, limited people. Um, we are by no extent uh, God. We are by no extent have the wisdom and knowledge of you, Lord. And so we pray by your grace that you would soften our hearts to your word, bring down the barriers that we bring this morning, Lord, and let us be reminded of your kindness to us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Romans 3, verse 1 through 18. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though every one were a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory... Why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom, the venom of asps is under their lips. 
Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Amen. When I was in junior high, I tried out for the basketball team. And I didn't make the cut, uh, but I was driven to make the team the next year. And so I went to the coach and I asked him if I could be the manager. And he said, sure. So basically as manager, I'd help shag balls, I'd keep statistics, things of that sort. But I got to sit on the sideline with the teams and all those good things. Well, as we headed into the year, the team decided to get team shoes. Uh, I think they were Air Jordans, not sure exactly what they were, but they cost around $100. And I remember that because I went to my parents and I said, Mom and Dad, we need to buy these shoes. And they said, well, how much are these shoes? I said, well, they're around $100. And their response terrified me. They said, no. You cannot have these shoes. And I thought, but I'm going to be so uncool. I mean, I'm already not really a part of the team. I mean, this is just going to embarrass me all the more. You have to buy me these shoes. I mean, I know you have the money, and I know I have the desire to have these shoes, right? You have to buy me these shoes. Otherwise, I'll look out of place, and it'll be so embarrassing. And again, they said, no. I said, but come on, Mom and Dad. You love me. I'm your favorite child, right? It's my birthright. I deserve these shoes. And again, they said, no. I was entitled. I thought I deserved my parents purchasing these shoes for me simply because I was their child. In today's passage, Paul is addressing an entitled group of ethnic Jews at the church in Rome. These Jews were convinced that because of their ethnic Judaism, because they were descendants of Abraham, that they deserved God's approval, that God owed them something. We can have the same entitlement in church today. So many people think, well, I've been to church. I've opened the doors for people. I've been nice to people. I've dropped a little money in the offering plate. I've walked the aisle. I've prayed the prayer. God owes me good things. He owes me a comfortable life, a peaceful life, a pain-free life. He owes me heaven forever. Or maybe you can relate it more in this way. Have you ever prayed for something urgently? Have you ever been at a time where you're just like, Lord, please help me. What job do I take? Or Lord, can I please have a job? Have you prayed, God, give me a husband, give me a wife? Maybe you've prayed, Lord, my sister has cancer and it's devastating. Lord, heal her from this cancer. Have you ever prayed those things and God said no? And you respond to God's no with anger. I can't believe God didn't give me this. I prayed urgently. I did, I was a good person this week. I tried hard to surrender my life to God, and yet he said, no, I'm so angry that God didn't answer my prayer in my way. Have you ever thought that, honestly? That's entitlement. Because we believe that if we follow this prayer formula that God owes us to answer our prayers our way. And so let me ask you this question, and I want you to answer honestly in your heart, not out loud, but 
Do you believe that God must be good to you because you have been good to God? Do you believe God must be good to you because you have been good to God? Do you believe in any way, shape, or form that God owes you kindness in any way, shape, or form? If there is a hint of yes to any of those questions in your heart, it reveals our entitlement. And so today, God is going to do surgical work on our hearts and our souls to reveal the entitlement and to cut it away so that we might, so that we might replace it and rejoice in it with the gospel of grace. And so Paul addresses their entitlement, first off, by addressing the advantage of the people of God. Look at verse 1 with me again. It says, Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Now, where did this question come from? Why are they asking this question? Well, when Paul wrote this letter to the Romans, there were no chapter numbers or verse numbers. It comes right after the end of Romans chapter 2. If you look with me in Romans chapter 2, verse 26 through 29, it says this. Paul says this. He says, So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? You see, circumcision was a sign put on God's people in the Old Testament that identified them with the visible people of God. We'll talk more about that in a second. He says, then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code in circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. And so here in the end of Romans chapter 2, Paul says, listen. You may have received that sign of circumcision, but not everyone who is physically circumcised is circumcised of the heart. Not everyone who says they are a Jew is a true Jew to God. God requires something more. He requires a circumcision of the heart by the Spirit. And so the natural question that flows out of this is if our circumcision and our Jewishness does not make us right with God, then is there any advantage at all to being a Jew or to being circumcised? Any advantage? And Paul says in verse 2, much in every way, to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. The oracles of God is simply the word of God, the Old Testament scriptures, in which were in them the plan of God, the redemption of God, the salvation of God. It was of great benefit for the people of God to have this. Now what's interesting here is, Paul says, to begin with, and he's starting to list out the advantages of being a Jew and being circumcised, and he actually doesn't return to this until Romans chapter 9. And so in Romans chapter 9, Paul gets further detail of the advantages that Jews have. In Romans chapter 9, it says this. You can put up on the screen. There we go. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. What Paul is saying is that all of these are advantages of being a Jew. Yet it does not entitle them to right standing with God. 
Now, I know this is really confusing, and so uh, a graphic that I often go back to is a diagram with circles, if you could put that up. And so let me just kind of walk through this with you really quick. So throughout scriptures, there is the visible people of God. And in the Old Testament, the visible people of God are called Israel. And the way that they are identified with the people of God is through a sign, circumcision of the flesh. When we get to the New Testament, the people of God are called the church. We talked a little bit about this last week. But the sign changes from circumcision to water baptism. Now, the point of being part of the visible people of God was the hope and desire that people would claim Christ as their own and become part of the invisible people of God. And so that Israel would become part of true Israel and have a circumcision of the heart by the Spirit, as we just read at the end of Romans chapter 2. And in the same way, the church, those who are baptized by water, would become part of the true church, which is baptism of the Holy Spirit. In Mark chapter 1, John the Baptist says to his disciples, he says, I have baptized you with water, but he, Jesus, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So how does this diagram apply to this passage? Well, the Jews, again, are asking in verse 1, is there any advantage to being an Israelite, to being a part of the visible people of God, to having a physical circumcision? Is there any advantage at all to being a part of this people group if it does not guarantee me a right relationship with God, if it does not guarantee me salvation? And Paul says, yes, there is a great advantage to being a part of the visible people of God. Because to the visible people of God belong the word of God, which displays the glory of God and the salvation of God. To the church belongs the covenants of God's grace and love and mercy. To the people of God belongs God's gracious and perfect law. To the visible people of God belong this opportunity to gather and to worship and to enjoy the Lord and to hear from his word. To us belongs the patriarchs who show us the faithfulness of God and point us to Jesus. And of course, to us belongs the Christ because we are his bride and he is our groom. And so these are great advantages corporately of the visible body of the people of God. And yet these advantages can only be fully enjoyed when they are realized by faith, when they are appropriated by the people of God, when they claim these advantages as their own and come from the visible people of God into the invisible people of God with the circumcision of the heart by the Spirit. Paul continues in verse 3 through 4 to list out another advantage of the people of God. He says, what if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. You know, one of the greatest advantages to being a part of the visible people of God, to being a part of the Jewish people, was the faithfulness of God. God was faithful in his promises to keep all of those advantages for the visible people of God available to those people. God was faithful to his promises 
to bring a redeemer, to bring a Christ. You know, if you read through the prophets of the Old Testament, basically what they are saying is this. They are coming to the people of God, and they are warning them. They are saying, listen, you have run away from God for hundreds of years. You have worshipped false idols. You have oppressed the poor. And so God is bringing judgment upon you. He will bring in a foreign empire to exile you out of the promised land throughout the world. But along with that prophecy of judgment always comes the prophecy of hope and of promise that God will be faithful to his promises, that God will preserve a remnant, that God will once again redeem and restore his people, that God will bring a Christ, a Messiah, a Savior to make all things new. And so God is faithful to his promises to his people, and this is of great advantage to the visible people of God. But again, to fully enjoy all of these advantages that belong to the visible people of God, whether it be Israel or the church, they must be claimed by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. This past Wednesday, my family went down to the new Town district. I don't know if you've been there. It's just west of the stadium. And if you go there, they have this this life-size uh, uh, field uh, that's AstroTurf football field, and they have field goal posts and things like that, and you can go out there. We played a game of football. Uh, my kids kick field goals. I kick field goals. They also have this place where you can do a 40-yard dash, and it measures how fast you are uh, or how slow you are in my case. Um, they also have this brand-new amazing playground. Uh, you can also play ping pong. You can play bocce ball. You can play shuffleboard. You can play beanbag toss. You can play foosball. You can do all these things, and the best part is it's free. It costs you no money at all to go, which with a family of four, six, I'm pretty happy. Four kids, six of us total. It's nice that something's free, right? This is an advantage for anybody who lives in Green Bay. It's an advantage for anybody who visits Green Bay. But here's the thing, to fully enjoy this advantage, you can't just know about it. You can't just watch a news clip on TV about it. You can't just drive by it, look at it, and go ooh and ah. To fully enjoy it, you have to appropriate it, which means you have to take it for your own use. You have to step on the field. You have to throw the ball. You have to slide down the hill. And so the question is, is there advantage to being a Jew? to being circumcised. Paul says there's great advantage, but you must appropriate these things for yourself. Claim them for yourself by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. So let's apply this to us. Many of you probably know that Jacob's Well is a Presbyterian church. Um, If you didn't, surprise! I'm sorry. I know it's not as cool as being non-denominational, but we're Presbyterian, all right? Everyone loves non-denominational, which is also a denomination. That's another thing. But we're Presbyterian, and because we're Presbyterian, we, and not because we're Presbyterian, but because of our biblical convictions, we become Presbyterian. But we believe that just as in the Old Testament, our house, the households were uh, dedicated to God and became part of the visible people of God through circumcision, we believe in the same way circumcision was applied to this whole household, baptism is applied to the whole household as well. And so we baptize our children. And when we baptize our children, we bring them into the visible people of God. By the way, I know not all of us agree on that. That's okay. But let me just explain this. And so we become part of the visible people of God. And our hope and our expectation is that our children would claim all the advantages 
advantages of being a part of the visible people of God, that they would claim those advantages by faith and grace through Jesus Christ, and that they would become part of the invisible people of God, baptized by the Holy Spirit, circumcised of the heart. You see, when we baptize our children, we're dedicating them to the Lord. But more than that, we are promising to avail them to all the advantages of being a part of the visible people of God. To, to teach them how to read the Bible. To teach them how to pray to God as Father. To tell them about the prophets of the Old Testament and, and the patriarchs and show how God is faithful to his promises. And so whether you were baptized as a child or not, if you have been around the church in general, you are of great advantage because you are raised with all the advantages that Paul communicates here. You have been taught the word of God. You've been shown Again, how to pray to your heavenly Father. You've been made aware of God's covenants of grace through Christ. You've been given wisdom from the law of God. You have participated in corporate worship with the people of God. You have known the stories of the patriarchs who point to Christ. And so you have great advantage as being a part of the visible people of God. But you must not stop there. You must appropriate those advantages. You must claim those as your own by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And so in the process of expelling Jewish entitlement, Paul starts by affirming the advantages of being part of the visible people of God. But then he targets the presumption of the people of God. Look at verse 5 with me. He says, but if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? If you're with us as we went through the book of Acts, you probably know as Paul went from city to city, the very first place he went to was the temple. He went to the Jews to tell the good news about the fulfillment of the promises of God, to tell the good news about Jesus. And so Paul had proclaimed the gospel to thousands and thousands of Jews in hundreds of different locations. And so Paul was familiar with the common objections to the good news of the gospel. And so Paul starts addressing those objections that he would hear time and time again. And so first here, Paul takes this objection. And it's a little bit confusing, but it kind of goes like this. The objection is this. If our sin brings God's righteousness into focus and magnifies his glory, then is it right for God to punish us as sinners? After all, are we not revealing his righteousness by our sin? And Paul answers emphatically, no way, Jose. No way. That's the Greek translation, literal translation. No way, Jose. That's not okay. That's not all right to believe. God will judge you, the Jews, just as God judges the Gentiles, because we know that God is judge of the entire world, which includes both Jews and Gentiles, and God must judge all sin if God would to be just. And so no one is off the hook, not even those who have been circumcised or baptized or a part of the visible church. Paul moves on to another objection that's very similar to the one we just read. Verse 7 and 8, he says, But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. Leon Morris, a commentator, summarizes 
their objection in this way. He summarizes it like this. If the main result of sin is to advance God's purpose in some way, then it would seem that God is unjust when he punishes it. Sin is simply giving God the opportunity, right? Sin is giving God the opportunity of showing how righteous he is. And so he ought not to punish the sinner. It is not right for him to use sin as a means of promoting his purposes and then to punish the sinner. Paul's response to this logic, again, is emphatic. Your condemnation is just if this is what you believe. If you think that God's righteousness and a grace is an excuse for you to sin all the more, your judgment is just. Do you see how they are presuming on the grace of God, the kindness of God, the love of God, seeking to justify their own sin? They're saying, it's okay if I keep sinning because really God's going to do what he wants anyways. Most of you are familiar with the story Jesus tells of the prodigal son. I want to put a little bit of a spin on it, but the story goes like this. There's a son who comes to his father. He's one of two sons, and he says, I want my half of the inheritance. And so the father gives it to him, and he runs off to a foreign country, and he squanders it on reckless living and prostitutes. And he comes to the end of himself, and he is desperate, and he is impoverished, and he is starving. And so he figures, what else can I do? I have to go back to my father. Maybe he'll take me back as a hired hand. Maybe he'll, he'll treat me as a slave or whatever it might be. But at least I'll have food to eat. And so he goes back to his father, expecting his father's condemnation. But much to his surprise, his father runs out and embraces him and kisses him and puts on him rings and robes and shoes. And he kills the fat calf and throws this great celebration. Welcome his, his sinful son home. Now imagine if you are that son. How would you respond to such a father? Such a father that lavishes his love upon you who is so undeserving. How would you respond to that? My guess is that we would be overwhelmed by their love. Overwhelmed by our father's kindness and grace to us. We would delight in our Father, delight in His love, and we would seek to live in a way that honors Him and reveres Him. Now what if this happened? This is not in the Bible. This is the twist, Dan's twist. But what if, as the party died down, whether it be a night or a couple of days, the food's gone, the wine's gone, people are asleep, people are leaving. What if as the party wind down, that younger son decided to sneak into his father's room and steal the other half of the inheritance and run off again. And, and then on his way out, torch his father's property. And then he goes off and squanders it on the exact same things. How would you feel about that son? Angry, right? Rightfully so. Why? Because he's presuming on the kindness of his father. Friends, do we do this to God? Look really quick at Romans 2, just a chapter back, verses 3 and 4. Paul says, Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume, there's that word again, do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. Repentance is turning away from your sin and turning to God. And so let me ask you, 
Have you known the kindness of God? Have you known the kindness of God in his common grace to give you sun and laughter and food and drink and friendships and family and a place to live? Have you known his kindness through his common grace? Have you known his kindness through his saving grace to redeem you, to make you his own, to bring life inside of you? Have you known the kindness of God and yet presume upon it by sinning freely? Have you ever had the thought, you know what, I'm saved by grace, God will forgive me, so it's okay if I continue to dabble in this sin. Or maybe you've said, you know what, I will live like this Monday through Saturday, and then on Sunday I'll just ask for God's forgiveness. Such attitudes are offensive because they presume on the kindness of God. Because instead of allowing God's kindness to lead you to repentance, you have let God's kindness lead you back to the sin that he rescued you from. I think it's fair to say that the degree to which we continue in unrepentant sin is the degree to which we have not grasped the kindness of God towards us. Because if we understand how kind God is, that will drive out the sin in our hearts. And so have you dwelt on the kindness of God? Have you allowed it to change you and transform you? You see, Christian, it is true that if you go on sinning, God will forgive you. He will accept you. He will love you. But that's not the purpose of his kindness. His kindness is meant to lead you to repentance, that you can be free from sin, And enjoy him and his grace for all eternity. To turn you away from sin and turn you to God. And so Paul is seeking to expel entitlement in his people by reminding them of their advantages as the visible people of God, which was claimed by faith. But also warning, warning them against presuming against God's kindness. And finally, by revealing to the people of God their depravity. Look at verse 9 with me says, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. It's so interesting because in verse 2, we learn that the visible people of God have an advantage. And yet here in verse 9, we are told that we are no better off. You see, the people of God have an advantage But they're no better off. So what does that mean? Well, the reason we're no better off is because we are under sin, as it says in verse 9. What does it mean to be under sin? It means we are under the power of sin. Try this week to not sin in thought, word, or deed. Good luck with that. We are under the guilt of sin. Not just that we feel guilty, because sometimes we don't, but that we are actually guilty before a holy God. To be under sin means that we are under the penalty and judgment of God for sin. Now Paul goes on to communicate to these Jews how, how God feels about our sin and how sinful we are. And he does this using their scripture, their oracles of God, the Old Testament, by communicating our depravity. And so as we look at this, just take a deep breath because sometimes the truth is very hard to hear. But Paul walks through our depravity. One thing he highlights is our moral depravity. Look at verse 10. He says, as it is written... None is righteous. No, not one. Three times in this one verse, Paul uses a negative. He says, none, no, not one. 
No one is righteousness. He's telling us that there are no loopholes, no exceptions, no omissions, that it applies to all of us, that none of us are righteous in and of ourselves. Verse 12 confirms this. He says, all have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Now you may be saying, wait a minute, wait a minute. I know I've done good things in my life from time to time. And I'm not saying I'm perfect, but I've done good things. And I know other people that do really good things. My grandma has done a lot of good things for me in my life. They do good things. And Paul is not denying that people do good things externally. But here's the thing. It's that God even judges the motivations of our heart. And for an act to be perfect, to be flawless, to be without sin, it must be done for the glory of God and not for ourselves. You see, in our own sinful nature, we do things for our glory so often, don't we? I'm not sure I've ever had a pure motivation in my life for doing a good thing. I'm not sure I've ever done it completely for God's glory, to be honest with you. I do it for my own glory. Maybe you do as well. Do it for my own glory so that others will notice or to make myself feel better or to somehow win approval of God, right? God says no one has done good because no one has done all things or good things for his glory. Not only is there moral depravity, but that inevitably leads to relational depravity. Look at verse 13 through 17. It says their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps, which is a type of snake, is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their path are ruin and misery. In the way of peace, they have not known. You've probably heard people say, oh, she has never had a mean thought in her life. Romans chapter 3 would disagree with you. All of us have spoken curses and bitterness towards other people. All of us have sought out unrighteous vengeance towards others. All of us have murdered people in our heart that are made in the image of God. All of us, without exception, have harbored bitterness and unforgiveness. All of us are morally and relationally depraved. But it gets worse. We are also spiritually depraved. Verse 11 and 18 are kind of bookends to this section, and they reveal our spiritual depravity. Verse 11 says, no one understands, no one seeks for God. Our sin and our rebellion and our depravity is so bad that it affects our mind that we cannot even comprehend God in our own nature. As we sang earlier, we run our hellbound race indifferent to the cost. None of us, by nature, have sought God. Again, you may say, wait a minute, I know people that seek God. Well, people, people mostly just seek their own, uh, that, their own agendas. But sometimes people seek forgiveness. They seek a clear conscience. But this says no one actually seeks God. Verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Throughout Scripture, there's this common refrain that the fear of the Lord it's the beginning of wisdom. If you want to be wise, you need to know who God is. And if you know who God is, there will be a godly fear in you. Because if you see the awesomeness and majesty and glory and justice and righteousness of God, there will be fear. It is a godly fear. 
But here we are told there is no fear of the Lord in their eyes. Friends, Paul in this passage is peeling back your soul and my soul. And inspired by God using the scriptures of the Old Testament, he's showing us the reality of our soul. It is as if Paul is taking a a three-legged stool that we sit on of our own righteousness. And he's saying, you think you're morally righteous? Boom, kicks that out. You think you're relationally righteous? Boom, kicks that leg out. You think you're spiritually righteous? Boom, kicks that out. He reveals our moral depravity, our relational depravity, our spiritual depravity to show us our pervasive depravity. Now you may wonder, what profit is there to Paul showing us how absolutely sinful we are, how depraved we are? Well, there is much profit in every way, but there are two specific ways I think Paul is directing us. The first is this. When we understand our own depravity, it expels entitlement. Right? If we believe what Scripture says about our souls, we have no reason to boast in ourselves. We can't look at someone who does wicked things and say, I'm better than them. We can't because we know that we would be the same as them if it were not for the restraining grace of God because the wickedness is pervasive throughout our soul and mind and hands. So the first reason Paul highlights this is to expel entitlement. We are no better than anyone else. But the second reason and the most important reason Paul reveals our depravity of our souls is to make us look outside ourselves. Again, if the condition of our hearts and souls are this bad, then we cannot be the answer to our problem. We cannot be the ones who who justify ourselves by our own righteousness. We can't just work a little bit harder, run a little bit faster on the, the moral treadmill. We have to look to an alien righteousness, to righteousness that is found outside of ourselves. If we are that depraved, we must look elsewhere to be acceptable before God. We must search for a righteousness, not of us, but of another to make our own. And that is our only hope of being right before God. A couple decades ago, there were two brothers in St. Louis who went to go play on some sand dunes by the Mississippi River. And as they were playing on the sand dunes, they got stuck in quicksand and they started to sink. When their family realized that they weren't home for dinner on time, they started to get worried. And so they formulated a search party from the neighborhood and they went to go find these brothers. And as they searched, they finally came to these sand dunes. And they run up to the younger brother whose head is just above the sand. And they say, are you okay? Are you okay? Yes, yes. Where is your older brother? To which he says, I'm standing on his shoulders. His older brother sacrificed his own life so that his little brother could live. Friends, whether you grew up in the church or not, if you're trying to stand before God with your own righteousness, you are sinking in your own sin, in your own guilt, in your own depravity. And God's judgment is just. But the good news is that our big brother Jesus came from heaven to earth, and he says, stand on my shoulders, stand on my righteousness, and live. 
Paul tells us of how utterly depraved we are that we might rejoice in the grace of God and the righteousness of Christ given to us. You see, the crescendo of these two months of us talking about sin comes here in Romans chapter 3, verse 21 and 22, where Paul says, but now, but now, the righteousness of God, a righteousness none of us could even come close to attaining, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, apart from obedience to God's perfect law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith, not by works, through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Peter puts it this way in 1 Peter 3.18. He says, For Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteous, Jesus, for the unrighteous, you and me, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Friends, if you want to know what we are entitled to from God, All you have to do is look at the cross. Because the cross is where Jesus bore our sin, bore our shame, bore the judgment and wrath of God that we are entitled to so that we could be called sons and daughters of God and now be entitled, not by our own works, but by Christ, entitled to the glory of a relationship with God for all eternity. People of God, whose righteousness do you stand upon? Do you stand upon your own? You will sink. But if you stand on the righteousness of Christ, by faith, you will live. Let me end with this. When I was in college, um, my parents would come and visit me on a fairly regular basis. I lived about two hours from home. And when they would come and visit me, one of the things they would do is they would take me out for dinner, which was a really great treat because as a poor college student, I really couldn't afford to go out to eat very much. And as we would go out to eat, I was just so thankful for them. And so I'd say, thank you for buying dinner. And the reason why I was so thankful was because I came to two realizations. The first was this. I was 18 years or older, so they didn't owe me a dime. They didn't have to provide for anything in my life. But the second realization was what has come through the scripture, is that I am a sinner that deserves nothing but the wrath and judgment of God. And so everything I get whether it be my next breath, laughter from my children, or an awesome Mexican dinner, all of it is a gift of God's grace to me. And so when my parents would take me out and I would say thank you, my dad finally said, would you please stop that? Like, this is just getting awkward. You don't need to thank me when we go out to eat. But the reason why I was so thankful was because God was expelling my entitlement. I didn't believe I deserved anything. And so everything was a gift of God's grace. You see, friends, when God expels entitlement from our hearts, it creates gratitude and thankfulness because we recognize that the one thing we deserve, we will not get, but that everything else, food and laughter and breath and friendships and especially salvation, is a gift of God's overwhelming and undeserving grace. Let's pray. Lord, we come confessing that we do often come entitled to you, Lord. We're angry that you don't do things our way. We don't trust in your plan. We think that you need to bend to our needs and our desires. Forgive us, Lord. Humble us by our depravity, by our sin. And then fill us with your grace. May we be a thankful people who rejoice in your kindness towards us every second of every day. And we pray this in Jesus' name.
Amen.